What which uh, character do you think I'm gonna introduce myself as? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Just, just go ahead. Just go ahead. Yeah. You've got a backup. Yeah. Okay. Welcome to Chronically Narnia, the podcast in which my co-host and I discussed the discussed yep. and continue to discuss the Chronicles <laughs> of Narnia chapter by chapter. And today we are discussing chapter six of Prince Caspian, the people that lived in hiding. Whoa. And um, I, of course, am Hogglestock the Hedgehog, also known as Kristen. And this is my co-host, Reepicheep, a gay and martial mouse. Ooh, Reepicheep. Also known as Chris. See, I forgot that Reepicheep was introduced in this chapter, and Reepicheep is uh, flat out my favorite Narnia character. Which you've mentioned before, and I was positive that you were going to introduce yourself as Reepicheep. <laughs> so my backup character was Hogglestock the Hedgehog. <laughs> so you completely reversed my uh, my plan there. Oh, I see. <laughs> No, I'm not I mean, going to introduce <laughs> myself as my favorite character. Why not? I'm going to introduce myself as my favorite name. Hogglestock the Hedgehog is the best thing. I read that and I was like, we need to rename Hogbert. <laughs> to Hogglestock? To Hogglestock! That's, for, for those listeners who might not be aware, we do have a, uh, a plush hedgehog that lives in our house, among other things. Yeah, it, it, well, a stuffed animal, like... Yeah. I know plush means that, but like, yeah, it's a stuffy. Yeah, we also have a stuffed cuttlefish, which as of yet does not have a name. Um, Milo named it Cookie. No, that was the other thing. Not the oh, cuttlefish. Oh no, no, you're right. He named Gee. the green rabbit Cookie. Yeah, Gee. he had a name for the cuttlefish. Well, he had he... suggested a name. Okay, you know what? Milo is not important enough to name the. <laughs> wow. <laughs> this is this is wow. this is. Wow, his dad listens to the podcast. You need you can, to calm down. You can cut that out. No, I'm just saying this is our relationship thing. Like, if he was our son, yes, he absolutely could, but he's not. So, anyway. <laughs> you can edit that. Uh, but yeah. So, I thought you were going to introduce yourself as Claude's, Cla- Claudesley Shovel the Mole. That's great. There's a lot of characters in this chapter. Like I know, tons. I told you. There there are more characters introduced in this chapter than, like... I think have been other named books. in the entire books yeah. prior. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we could actually get into that, but there's a lot. Um, and But we won't get too far into, like, the number of them because that's going to factor heavily into my... Uh, baseless speculation okay so we'll we're gonna get there i have a rabbit trail to go down okay um but let's actually talk about the chapter is, first is it related to lord of the rings no okay for it doesn't once. have to do with like the three rings given to the no not the not the rings <laughs> and, and not the number <laughs> the, of silmarils or not nine, like the nine rings given to the to the lords of men and... no no it doesn't relate to that okay uh though that would have been a good reference for lewis to put in here but he doesn't so, um, that you know of, this is also probably one of my favorite chapters of any of the books that we've read. Um, okay. I love the way this chapter is written, like as much as it's very formulaic and it's very much a chapter where it's first we go here and meet these people. Then we go here and meet these people. There's See, a lot. And, and you are like 
Nothing happens in this chapter to progress the plot. A lot of stuff happens in this chapter. Like, this chapter has a lot of action. Like, lots and lots of things happen here. I, I expected you to be a, a punk about this chapter. No. And I was ready to come to its defense. No, I really like it. I really, <laughs> I, I love a lot of the lines here. Like, there are lines in this chapter that are so good that I doubt Lewis wrote them. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm spicy this morning. Wow. Uh, I got my new recording chair and it's, you know, giving me vigor. Yeah. It's um, also squeaky. It's also a very careful. loud chair. Uh, anyway, so why don't we start out with our summary? We almost forgot to do that. All right. Well, before you dive right into your list of how awesome this chapter is in great quotes, mm-hmm. let's do our summaries. Um, yeah. As we read through the chapter, each of us selects five sentences to summarize the chapter using the chapter's own words. Mm-hmm. Um and so uh, I'll go first. You go first. Who wants to go first? Uh, mine's really long. Yours looks long as well. Yes. So, you know. I'll go first. You've been going first for a while. Okay, so here we go. On a fine summer morning, when the dew lay on the grass, he set off with the badger and the two dwarfs up through the forest to a high saddle in the mountains and down onto their sunny southern slopes where one looked across the green wolds of Arkenland. Truffle Hunter and the dwarfs thought this a very good idea and gave Pattertwig messages to all sorts of people with queer names telling them all to come to a feast and council on Dancing Lawn at midnight three nights ahead. They looked suspiciously at Caspian, but in the end, the eldest of them said, If he is against Moraz, we'll have him for king. As soon as Glenstorm had spoken, everyone felt much more serious. Our council at the Dancing Lawn must be a council of war. All right. Mm Mm-hmm. If you look at my um, rewrite, you'll see a sentence crossed off. Mm-hmm. It is our council at Dancing Lawn must be a council of war. Mm-hmm. So I crossed that one out. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that we had any in common because I crossed that one out. Oh. So okay. here's mine. It took some time to satisfy them that Caspian was a friend and not an enemy. But when they did... They all cried, long live the king, and their gifts were noble. Mail shirts and helmets and swords for Caspian and Trumpkin and Nicobrick. The badger could have had the same if he had liked, but he said he was a beast, he was, and if his claws and teeth could not keep his skin whole, it wasn't worth keeping. Up till now, neither Caspian nor the others had really been thinking of a war. It would take too long to mention all the creatures whom Caspian met that day. Clodsley, Shovel, the Mole, the three hardbiters who were badgers like Truffle Hunter, Camilo the Hare, and Hogglestock the Hedgehog. Why else does your majesty go clad in mail and girt with sword? Okay, so you have a much more like martial and war-themed summary than I do. Yeah. Like you saw it. Yeah. It kind of like plays into what I was like delving into in my rewrite later and some of my like my desire to be like this is a very whimsical chapter and it's mm-hmm. fun and it's the best time that Caspian ever had and mm-hmm. all of these things but also it is war. <laughs> like it is yeah. it is a call for the Narnians to 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 join up and fight the humans like and it's very much slowly occurring to the main character that he he is about to be leading a rebellion and yeah. not just happily living in hiding with these animals, but that he's actually coming to be a symbol of war. Yeah. 
uh, things happen very quickly in this chapter. Yes. Um, it's like, we go from, like, him just meeting these people and, like, the, you know, truffle hunter and the two dwarves being like, should we kill him or not? I don't know. To all of a sudden, he's basically leading a war party. Yes. In the space of, like, the seven pages of this chapter. So it unfolds very quickly. And we meet a lot of characters. Yes. And I think we should spend some time talking about each of them because I think there's there's something to be said for all these characters we meet. Okay. Uh, the f- Did they meet the bears first? Yes. All right. So, so the first, first group that they, they come across are the bears. The bulgy bears. The bulgy bears. They're very bulgy. They are very bulgy. <laughs> I mean, they're sleeping right now. They're, yeah. Uh, and they meet the bears first. Mm-hmm. Um, who are very sleepy. They wake them up. Yeah. And um, he, Caspian was offered some honey. They they basically uh, said they agreed with Truffle Hunter that a son of Adam ought to be king of Narnia. Mm-hmm. And they all kissed him and offered him honey. And it took him a long time to get unsticky. I mean, when you're just eating honey, like in the woods, without anything to eat it with. I mean, he didn't want it without bread, but... Yeah. You know, he didn't want to turn it down and be rude. Some toast with honey. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever tried to just eat honey straight? Yes, but, well, I mean, I usually use a spoon, but last night I tried to eat some honey without a spoon and I was struggling. They probably didn't bring a spoon on these adventures. Yeah. Hmm. (laughs) Did you really? What? Oh, okay. (laughs) (sighs) I was like, now I understand. Um, (laughs) You threw me for a loop there for a second. I ended up putting it in my tea instead. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, anywho. Then they meet... Better twig! Yeah, the the bears don't get named, which I think is interesting. Like, there's a kind of a, a split where a bunch of these characters they meet get named, but the bears don't. They're like, just the they're bulgy just, bears. They're a collective of bulgy bears. Yep. Uh, or the bulgies, as uh, Indeed. Trumpkin refers to them. Yep. And then we meet Patter Twig, who was a magnificent red squirrel, and you could tell from the look of him that he could talk. The size of a terrier. Yep. Just imagine a squirrel like the size of a... Terrier, like, scattering <laughs> about the trees. Like, if those were common, it'd be kind of terrifying. It would be. Just, like... Especially because, like, the trees right outside our front door are full of squirrels. Yeah. Just, like, 20-pound squirrels just skittering back and forth. Just imagine <laughs> the sound of those on the roof. So, yeah, that's, like, a... That's a giant squirrel. Um, and, you know, he's, like, a messenger. And he's very, uh, you know, not necessarily, not necessarily skittish, but... Uh, Truffle Hunter advises Caspian not to look when he goes to get his store of nuts because it's considered rude. Well, I mean, at least Truffle Hunter knows that Caspian is culturally inept when it comes to (laughs) animals' culture, and he doesn't know how to respect them correctly. Mm -hmm. And so Truffle Hunter is giving Caspian advice. Hey, don't watch him go get his store of nuts because that's rude. In squirrel culture, this is considered a jerk move. Um, Let's talk a little bit about animal stereotypes here because in the last chapter we had this thing where truffle hunter says uh you know he goes on about how beasts don't change and how they have long memories and like they stay the same just you know the changeable natures of dwarves and men and things that look human uh and here we're introduced to a few different like maybe ways that animals are perceived some very sleepy bears yeah, some sleepy a very bears. talkative talkative squirrel. chattery squirrel who's Ooh. very suspicious of his yeah Um, within this topic, while we're on it, Mm -hmm. there's a quote later from Glenstorm, the, um, centaur, who says, I watch the skies, Badger, for it is mine to watch, as it is yours to remember. Mm -hmm. I was going to bring that up. And he talks kind of, uh, almost like everyone has an assigned role. Mm -hmm. And the, like, 
And it's it's curious whether or not he's referring to it being the badger's role to remember or to be the beast's role to remember. Right. So I, I don't know. But we have very much got this similar to the way we had in Magician's Nephew when all of the animals basically plant Uncle Andrew as a treat. <laughs> Uh-huh. We have these very distinct personalities that each one has, but they also very much fit like a stereotype you might consider if you just decided what animals were like from the way we talk about wise owls and excitable puppies and stuff like that. So this mm-hmm. squirrel very much kind of fits the personality that we see in squirrels even today in in fiction like oh, i thought you meant like in reality like these no. modern well yeah. earth squirrels these modern earth squirrels <laughs> and their personalities no i mean like like the like the squirrel with the acorn in ice age and stuff like that like i was like trying to Patter, think of another fictional squirrel Patter twig fits this idea very very much as i would picture that squirrel presented even today mm-hmm so, um, we also have, um, do we have many more beasts specifically that he's introduced to by name? Uh, I mean, we have... He, he meets more badgers. Yeah, yeah, we have Reap a Cheap, obviously. Reap a Cheap. Okay, uh, so tell me, tell me where your, uh, Reap a Cheap the mouse, a gay and martial mouse, tell me how his stereotype fits into this. Um... He's very brave, and, like, there's, you know, a surprising amount of fiction where, like, you know, there's mice that are, like, knights or adventurers or, you know, brave in some way, which... There's also, like, three blind mice, though. Yeah, I guess, and in reality comes from, like, you know, I've never really been in a place that had house mice, but house mice are generally, like, you know... The ones that are darting to and fro and like avoiding the cat and like they're, they're being brave oh, and so going you're out for like an when... a Tom and Jerry situation. Yeah, like the, like the mouse is very very uh martial and yeah, like, skilled and smart and yeah, like that's that's a thing. I'm trying they to gotta outsmart the cat. Yeah. Um. Otherwise, they're just like ninjas and yeah. they hide and then they're there. And then there's there's this trope. Uh, you know, that shows up, like, a lot in Disney fix and in a lot of children's literature of, like, you know, small little critters that are brave and adventurers and, like, things like that. Mm-hmm. Like the um, Mighty Mouse. And... Like, yeah, like Mighty Mouse and, like, the Red Wall and, like, what was the Disney one? Uh... Rescuers. Yeah, the Rescuers. That was what I was that trying to think of. That wasn't Disney. Was it not? Rescuers Down Under? I don't think that's Disney. No, it wasn't. Yeah. But, uh, things like that. Uh... There's a board game that I can't remember the name of where there's like a... Mousetrap? No, not Mousetrap. But there's ones where you play it. It's like an RPG based around mice and you play as like, you know, armored mice and whatnot. (laughs) Okay. Uh, There was... Sorry, I got to look this up because it's going to drive me crazy. (laughs) I'm looking for a specific film. Um, (laughs) Tale of Despero. Specifically that one, which was really cute about a mouse who was an adventurer and a like you know okay brave okay. little guy um so this see is... i take i take reek but cheap and i put him very much in the same category of character as i put like puss in boots okay from the yeah. shrek franchise like <laughs> you know puss in boots from the shrek franchise 
That's what he was originally <laughs> from. I mean, he had his own movie, but... I'm pretty sure it's a old, much older, older story than that. Oh, I, yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm going to look this up. I'm okay. the fact checker in this podcast. So, you know, I don't want to get angry tweets of people being like, oh, you're stupid, you're not getting this literary reference. Um, do, 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 do. So from Wikipedia, Master Cat or the Booted Cat, uh, commonly known in English as Puss in Boots, is an Italian and later European literary fairy tale about an anthropomorphic cat, anthropomorphic cat who uses trickery and deceit to gain power, wealth, and the hand of the princess in marriage for his penniless and low-born master. Uh, originally dated in Italy around 1550. Okay. So it's very, so very I old. had no idea. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I had no idea. Yep. So very old fairy tale. But yeah, I get you where you're coming from. Okay. Um, and we also meet Claudesley Shovel the Mole, the three hardbiters who are more badgers, the Camilo the Hare, Hogglestock the Hedgehog. Um, we discuss briefly the spirits of the trees. And other than that, I don't think we have any other named beasts. Um, yeah. Pattertwig comes back. But other than that, we meet some... Dwarves and some centaurs and some fawns, mm-hmm. but those are all of the critters, the creatures, yeah. the, the the beasts that are specifically mentioned. Different flavors of dwarves, even. Yes. Uh, so after Pattertwig, we go and meet the seven brothers of Shuddering Wood. Yes. Which almost sounds like Lord of the Rings thing. That's my one, you know, L to R reference in this podcast. <laughs> um, and they have a really fun scene where there's an intro. Uh, where they're underground and they come up to a flat stone about the size of the top of a water butt, which I had to look this up. I didn't know what a water butt was. Um, apparently, it's a container for storing water. What? I haven't actually looked up what one looks like, but listeners, you can do that, or we'll post one on the Instagram. Uh, and they find these dwarves. If you keep promising Instagram posts, you're going to have to take over the Instagram. Okay. I was Originally, when we were planning this podcast, I was supposed to run the social media. Yeah, you were. <laughs> Um, but yeah, they, they have to knock on this stone thing. They find this entire forge underground, like the dwarves have an underground forge. Yep. And this brings me to, you know, back to my point that I've been making over the past couple chapters where this is an active resistance that Caspian is coming into. Like the dwarves were down there. They had this whole forge set up. They've been making weapons. Yeah. They already have mail and weapons ready for Nick of Brick and for... Uh, Caspian and for mm-hmm. so like this is an active the other guy like an organized plan Trumpkin? that's no Trumpkin yeah yeah Trumpkin like this is an organized plan that's been going on for some time yeah like they have infrastructure they have like a network they have like and these are red dwarves correct yes okay mm-hmm. sorry I was pausing no no, no I just mm-hmm. was making sure I was just clarifying that these are red dwarves they're seven brothers all red dwarves they promised to come to the feast at Dancing Lawn, and so you think because they've all they've got noble gifts to offer to Caspian that they are actively preparing to go fight against Moraz. Yeah, like they had a whole hidden forge underground with like a stream and whatnot. It's a really cool scene, but like they have they have this setup, and like you know Truffle Hunter, like one of the leaders of this resistance cell, he knows where all these people are, and like there's Pattertwig who is like, yeah, I know where all these other people are. I'm going to run messages to them. Yeah, like they have a. They have a system. They have a system. They have a system for surviving, though. I'm still arguing that they're surviving as <laughs> uh-huh. opposed to active resistance. Yes, but but I, I know I know what you're saying. Yeah, but why are the dwarves already prepared to make weapons? Because armor? they're dwarves. 
Yeah, but you got to have like molds for that kind of thing, and you got to have like the materials and like. Yeah, because they did it before. <laughs> I'm just saying, uh, but yeah, we like, it very quickly goes from you know this is a happy-go-lucky adventure where we're going out in the woods and meeting some fun animals and the bulgy bears are you know we're eating honey and that kind of thing to oh, hey, we're going to give you weapons and armor and you're going to become a resistance leader and you're going to start a civil war. Which is, like, why, very... my, my, which is why my rewrite was focused the way that it was. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Like because... it just turns on a dime right there. Yeah. Um, and even then, they're not registering that it has made this change until Glenn Storm is, comes up and just says, me and my sons are ready for war. Yes, which my my biggest complaint with this chapter is that i feel like the order in which some of these characters are introduced should have been messed around with a little bit and we should have had glenstorm be introduced before the seven dwarves like if they go to the prophet centaur and he's just like yeah war is coming we're ready and then they go to the dwarves and their dwarves are like yeah we're going to make you weapons and armor and that that follows more naturally i think that it makes them. a little uh, I, yes i i think that that would be a flow a progression however uh-huh. I like the fact that he gets these gifts from the dwarves mm-hmm. that are very characteristic of the dwarves. Mm-hmm. It's what they do. They make armor. They make weapons. They run a forge. Mm-hmm. This is the gift that they have to give to their new king. Mm-hmm. And the sword is so much better than the... It made the sword that Caspian was carrying before look like a toy sword. Uh-huh. Um, Those dwarven swords. Yes. And then... After that, we have the introduction of the black dwarves. I like this progression because we have the red dwarves who are just like, hi-ho, hi-ho, here's some armor, and off to war you go. And then we meet (laughs) the black dwarves who are five black dwarves who are very suspicious. They're very much finally just like, if he's against Mraz, we'll have him for king. Like, if Mm -hmm. he is against the guy we hate, enemy of my enemy is my friend. Also, should we go get the ogre and the hag to join us? Yeah. We- and everybody except for Nickabrick mm-hmm. says, we don't want any of that sword on our side. Uh-huh. And even Trumpkin says, if we had had, if you had said yes, you would have lost my support. And um, so the Black Dwarves are very much painted as these characters who were the kind of dwarves who were loyal to the White Witch, who work with the ogres and the hag, who are friends with the unseemly. Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like they're more neutral because, like, you know, even Trumpkin is more willing to side with them. Like, apparently there's this cultural rift between the Red Dwarves and the Black Dwarves. And, you know, I'm not going to mention anything about racial politics. We don't need to get into that in the podcast. But... Maybe we do. Um, there's this cultural rift, and but you know, Trumpkin is willing to be like, yeah, let's go meet the Black Dwarves, and like we got them on our side. Cool, they'll support us. Like he hangs out with Nickabrick, like they can be friends. But, but then they're very much even. Even Nickabrick is just like, I what he says when they talk about Aslan, he says, I'll believe in anyone or anything. Uh-huh. That'll batter the, these cursed Telmarine barbarians to pieces and drive them out of Narnia. 
anyone mm-hmm. or anything. Aslan or the White Witch, do you understand? Mm-hmm. This is Nick of Brick, and this is very much the idea that we have presented of the Black Dwarves, that they don't care about morality, they just care about their means. Mm-hmm. And so I would say rather than middle ground, like very much just self-seeking and pragmatic. Yeah, they're they're the gray Jedi of this universe. Um, Maybe. <laughs> you know, there's no light or dark side. This is just, I mean, there's practicality. There's accomplishing things. Yeah. Like. But we also have within Narnia the concepts of good and evil and Aslan and the White Witch and the Black Dwarves just saying, we'll believe in whatever gets us what we want. Which is why I love, like, the Black Dwarves so much and their introduction here, and I want more of them because they're the first time in Narnia that we really get introduced to a shade of gray. Yeah. Like, everything else is very clear-cut. Like, you're on the side of Aslan, you're on the side of the Witch, or you're on the side of Calarmine or, like, Narnia. But, like... Here we have a neutral party almost, and that's something we haven't seen before. And I think that's, uh, I don't know, it, it's a sign of the world of Narnia maturing. Okay, yeah. Where we're starting to get into questions of morality and things like that. And, you know, why don't we want ogres and hags on our side? Why like not? we're fighting a war for survival, shouldn't we use any advantage that we can get? Yes, but also when we talk about the beasts remembering and these ideas, like, it's almost like there are inherently bad creatures and ogres and hags are apparently just evil and that there is no redemption for them, Mm -hmm. it seems. Yeah. Is that because they sided with the witch? Is that because they were created evil? Mm -hmm. Is that because they were brought in by the witch or what? Like, what... Did Aslan, did Aslan speak, sing Narnia into existence and create ogres and hags and they have to be evil because they exist? Like, We're going to get into the problem of evil again. Though. Yeah, gonna... <laughs> I know. And that's, and that's very much the problem that's presented the way that this chapter plays out when they say we don't want those kind on our side. Yeah. Like, either they represent evil and you have the problem of evil questions or this is just blatant racism and saying that they don't have the ability to change, period, mm-hmm. whether that's in the lore or not. Yes, I mean, yes, it brings up the problem of evil, and I don't really want to get into that, but regardless, it's problematic one way or the other. Either we have to get into the idea of the problem of evil because there are characters that are just inherently evil, there are creatures that are just inherently evil mm-hmm. and irredeemable, Or we get into the idea that there is all of this discrimination and animosity and that Truffle Hunter is just saying they are rabble. Mm -hmm. And whether or not they're redeemable or not, we don't want them on our side. And it's, I mean, it's problematic either way. Like either we have to get into this discussion about evil or we have to get into this discussion about how discriminatory... (laughs) Truffle Hunter is about the creatures that also have the same fight. Uh-huh. Well, you know, they're, you know, all these creatures are flawed. Like, Truffle Hunter is one of the ones that's weighing whether or not to kill Caspian in his sleep. Like, he's not, like, you know, this perfect beacon of morality. True. Mostly true. Yeah, and I mean, like, we're not fully certain as to whether or not the animals can change. Like, mm-hmm. We've been told that the animals remember and things like that. We've been given this kind of weird redemption arc of Narnia. 
from humans. Like, mm-hmm. humans brought the evil. Humans had to defeat the evil. Mm-hmm. The Narnian animals are just the natural the environment. Like, the nature that was there that was harmed by this. Uh-huh. And are they good or bad? Well, yeah, they're good unless they're hags and ogres. Like, does it make sense? Like, I don't know. Anyway, that's that's really, I mean, unless you have more that you want to throw in there, I feel like that's kind of... Yeah, Um, and I was weighing in my head whether or not, you know, this was like a positive or negative aspect and like it's being weighed against the, uh, the changeability of things like humans, but I don't think... Lewis is necessarily trying to say that one is better or worse than the other one. It's just like, this is the way that animals are. They're natural. It's the natural world. It's and the way it is. But he's also kind of established this, not necessarily hierarchy, but like changeability, where the closer things are to being man, the more corruptible they are. Uh-huh. And so, like, you have red dwarves and black dwarves that have fallen into different parts of the hierarchy of goodness. Mm-hmm. And then you have, like... The humans who have fallen into their own levels. But then you have centaurs and fawns who are just creatures. Uh Uh-huh. Who are, like, prophets or dancers or merrymakers, like, whatever it is that they fall under. That's their category. Yeah. I think Lewis's perspective is uh, kind of fascinating, though, because he does draw this line between humans and animals and, you know, saying for good or ill like humans are in a special place that's somehow apart from the natural world because they have this susceptibility to change and they can choose to be different and they can choose to be good and they can be the best of us or they can be the worst of us but albeit separate from the natural order of things and like that's a very common perspective throughout you know historical christianity however that's always been a perspective because humans are seen as the only creatures that have a will and like have self-awareness and the capacity for change but lewis is trying to say that thing same thing in a universe where a lot of different creatures have will and self-awareness and capacity yes but they still aren't fallen yeah kind of so So. we had i posted on the instagram asking whether or like why people thought animals didn't change and we had a couple of people say because they're angels that the beasts are the angelic realm as opposed to what you're arguing of the natural realm Mm -hmm. interesting and saying that there are some that are fallen and there are some that are good and that there is like this angelic spiritual environment where there is a structure for fallen angels like hags and ogres and there's a structure for the for the angels that serve Aslan of all of the other creatures. Yeah. Who are unchanging and don't and have this will structure that causes them to be forced to fit into what it is that they are already. Whether it's their job to remember or their job to see the prophecies of the stars. I feel like there's a lot that can be said about that, but also we don't want this to be a two-hour-long episode, <laughs> and there's a lot we haven't covered still, so we'll leave that there. We might revisit that, but there's things there's things that I would want to say, but it would turn into a very long discussion. Um, so let's just move on. Uh, okay. All right. So and then we have the introduction of... I, just all of that said, I want to kind of say that this all is coming out of 
this one conversation briefly where Nickabrick says that he will believe in anyone and anything that will get Miraz out of get the Telmarines out of Narnia. Yeah. It's a very it's a very loaded conversation. Like yes. it's a lot of stuff there. Uh, and then we go to more like very heavy stuff where we introduce Glenstorm and his three sons. Yes, the great centaur and his three sons, and they say, Long live the king. I and my sons are ready for war. When is the battle to be joined? That is the first thing that they say. Mm-hmm. And he's a prophet. Yes. So up until now, neither Caspian nor the others had really been thinking of a war. Mm-hmm. And so now they've got like, oh, now we, after they speak with him, they feel like, oh, not only do we have to go to war, but we might actually be able to win a war. Mm-hmm. Like this happens very suddenly too. Am I wrong completely, or is there a mention of a prophet in a previous book? Uh, yes. Like, okay. I mean, there's the centaur who prophesied over Kor at his birth, and yes. the reason that he was kidnapped away. Yeah, so that was the one. Like, I'm, It was I'm, a centaur as well, yes. Yeah, I'm not going to like go on the wild assumption that this is the same centaur, but is this a thing that centaurs do? They're uh, just prophets. Apparently. Okay. They keep the stars. They watch the skies, Badger, for this is theirs to watch. Mm-hmm. And Glenstorm specifically says something like, uh, I say something like, I'm going to read the quote. Tarva and Alambil have met in the halls of high heaven, and on earth the son of Adam has once more arisen to rule and name the creatures. The hour That's, has struck. Our yeah. council at Dancing Lawn must be a council of war. Uh, so th- that, that line specifically seems to be a very, like, very broad, very all-encompassing prophecy. I'm assuming... I mean, I wouldn't say that that is a prophecy. I think that that is him drawing a conclusion of this great celestial event also pointing to, mm-hmm. like, a change coming. Because yes. even Cornelius, yeah. Yeah. even Dr. Cornelius saw this um, event, this this astronomical event, as being a sign. Anyway, um, so ostensibly he's referring to Caspian in this line of this prophecy here. Uh I think it's very interesting that he says, on Earth, the son of Adam has once more arisen to rule and name the creatures. Like, he's directly referring to, like, the Adam of Earth. And that's... Sto- yes. I, yes. Yeah. Okay, that just that just struck me. Because yeah. we have this whole lore of sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Mm-hmm. And this is lore that would only have been introduced to Narnia through Frank and Helen. Yes. And them coming here and ruling and saying that they were of the line of adam and eve mm-hmm. fascinating because so this... isn't that how aslan addresses them yes okay so this goes back to like the very beginning and like a different universe so like yeah mm-hmm. well on on narnia in mm-hmm. narnia when aslan formed it as would be revealed in later writing but at earlier discussion mm-hmm in the magician's nephew, like he, Aslan created Narnia and humans happened to be there. And so they became a part of the structure of the redemption of Narnia because they also were part of this kind of effect of bringing the witch into Narnia mm-hmm. and introducing damage and harm and evil into Narnia. Yeah. And so with that said, like the concept of a son of Adam is like a two-edged sword in Narnia where where the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve have been around since the beginning of Narnia mm-hmm. and have been the source of problems and recovery. Yes. Um, 
yeah also he has a really cool name like glenn storm like yep great name for a prophet um so war etc etc sorry we still have a lot to talk about and want to keep this moving um anything else you wanted to say about glenn storm and the prophecy no not really i mean i just like we have a lot to talk about with the <sighs> prophetic and divine nature of things in narnia but yeah. like not now if we really want to drag this out we can make this our first two-part episode for a chapter <laughs> and like just really dive in here um like it says something that this is the first chapter i felt this was really necessary for because there's like there's a lot here um but then after glenstorm we go and meet another critter which is your favorite character in the entire series apparently which we've already touched on Reepcheep. we've talked about him a fair amount yes. already uh I, I without getting too spoilery like why is he your favorite I like, can't tell you. Okay. I'm assuming Reepicheep has some cool moments later in, like, this book or the series as a whole. Is he only in this book or does he come back? Do you want me to actually tell you that? Yes or no, yes. I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> Why do you ask me then? Um, okay. <laughs> I, like, do, do you... This is a book about war and you want me to tell you whether characters in it appear in other books. Well, like, if kill, I tell you that Truffle Hunt... If I tell you that Truffle Hunter appears in another book and I really like him, or like Nickabrick does, like, yeah. or Caspian, like, it's going to reveal to you whether or not these characters, like, survive this book. I mean, it's also a universe where characters come back from the dead. Like, you know, Lucy has her little vial of healing stuff. Like, eh, I don't know. Um, so we have Reaper Chief that we've talked about. Uh, we don't really get into any other characters like in a real yeah we name a few and that's about it yeah we have a mole we have the hard biters uh you know hogglestock the hedgehog which i wanted to find out more about but we have a very interesting moment which Mm -hmm. i feel like was important to touch on before we wrap up yeah they sit down in the field to rest Uh and trumpkin lights up his pipe Mm -hmm. nick wasn't a smoker yeah Nickabrick is the black dwarf, the little the little more intense dwarf. Uh-huh. And I find it interesting that this is something of note because we have these very like fatherly figures that are often portrayed as the ones who are like lighting up their pipes and smoking and stuff. Uh-huh. And I find it very interesting that there is this moment where it's like Nickabrick wasn't a smoker. Like, we have already, like, so heavily, heavy-handedly separated Nickabrick and Trumpkin uh-huh. and, their, and their, their, their races and their, like, you know, cultures and their desires and their willingness to fight with anybody or not, etc. Like, mm-hmm. they, even down to whether or not they smoke a pipe, <laughs> we have divided them so thoroughly. Yeah. And I think think that that's like a very intentional choice. Uh-huh. Um and I think that we need to keep following that. Yeah. Uh n- Nick's we, not into the nicotine. We have a brief discussion about whether or not they could wake the trees and Truffle Hunter says no, it's not something we could do. The trees have gone to sleep since men were felling the forests. One one more quick thing on that point that you mentioned. I think that's that's a fun thing that like you would not see in a modern book. Like this is very much a thing that like dates this where you wouldn't see, like, a modern children's story of being, oh, there's these two dwarves, and the good one is the one that smokes. <laughs> like, that's just not a thing that would yeah, that would happen. True. Um, it's like, that's that's a dating, uh, I don't know, thing. It's a cultural difference over time, absolutely. Yeah. Um, do, 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 do. Also, you wouldn't have children drinking wine constantly. Yeah. <laughs> 
so we meet them. Uh, we have a conversation about waking the trees, which... Uh, they think it would be a great advantage because Telmarines are horribly afraid of the woods. Mm-hmm. And if the trees moved in anger, the enemies would go mad with fright and be chased out of Narnia as quick as their lights could carry them. Which Trumpkin doesn't believe in such things, which I think is a weird line to draw. Like, you know... Trumpkin. Oh, what imaginations you animals have. Yeah, like, Trumpkin's in a world of magic and is surrounded by, like, talking animals, but, like, refuses to believe that, like, a tree could come to life. Like, that's a... That's why a, stop <laughs> at trees in water? Yeah. Why why not have the rocks throw themselves at morass? Yeah, I just feel like, I don't know, that's a, yeah. it's a weird stance for him to take. Uh, and then after Caspian has fallen asleep, he wakes up to the sound of merriment, and we have fawns mm-hmm. who come and have a midnight dance with them. Nickabrick does not participate. And uh, we meet uh, dozens of fawns, M- Mentius and Abentinus and Dumnus and Volinus. Mm. And Dumnus. Wonderful. Voltinus <laughs> and Ger... Ger- Gerbius and Nemanus and Nausus and Oscans. You really struggled to get through that. Patter Twig sent them all. Um, I can tell you practiced that. Uh, definitely. There. You see how each one of them is underlined too, so I didn't miss any. Yep. And that's it. When Caspian woke the next morning, he could hardly believe that it had not all been a dream, but the grass was covered with little cloven hoof marks. <laughs> That dancing fawn circle. Yep, and that was the the art for my chapter was the dancing fawn circle, where uh-huh. you see Nickabrick sitting off to the side just staring while the others are dancing. Yeah, he's not into that dancing and merriment. Nope, certainly uh-huh. not. Uh-huh. All right, and, so. You know, Tumnus is obviously still alive and changed his name slightly to avoid suspicion. To Dumnus? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's not part of my baseless speculation. It's just not? Throwing, okay, no. okay. All right, so are we doing our um, rewrites or our baseless speculation? Yeah, if you're done with, uh, we've covered everything that we want to cover, like, in yeah, a very really. quick way. Yeah. I uh, mean, we rushed through that last bit a little bit just because I don't want to dig into all yeah. of the symbolism of waking the spirits of the trees. Yeah. Um, so like you said, this is a chapter that we could continue on and have a very, very long discussion of. We but. could. Uh, so let us, we might do that in private later. Maybe that'll be fun to do over dinner. Yeah. The look Kristen just gave me. (laughs) Um, anywho, let's go ahead and do our rewrites, shall we? Sure. Okay. Welcome to Narnie Chopped and Screwed, a segment where we go back through the chapter and, oh, did we already introduce this? No. Okay. We go back through the chapter and pick five more sentences and create our own story out of them. Um, that's basically all there is to it. All right. Kristen, you want to go first? Yeah, so I'll go ahead and do my rewrite first since you did your summary first. Yep. All right, here's my rewrite. Mm-hmm. And again, we're ch- taking sentences from the chapter and telling a new story, hopefully. We'll try. When Caspian awoke next morning, he could hardly believe that it had not all been a dream, but the grass was covered with little cloven hoof marks. Our council at the Dancing Lawn must be a council of war. We have no power over them. No, said Truffle Hunter. I'll believe in anyone or anything, said Nickabrick, that'll batter these cursed Telmarine barbarians to pieces or drive them out of Narnia. You're in a very warlike mood today. Well, it's your I'm... summary and your right, right. Just like, you're just like, yeah. 
Yeah, I wrote them at the same time, and both of them I themed on war. And a lot of times, like, my rewrite reveals to me something else about the book and, uh-huh. and like, the chapter. It's a heavy chapter. And it's a really heavy chapter. Like, mm-hmm. it's whimsical and stuff, but also really intense themes happening here. Mm-hmm. It's dark with a touch of whimsy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I'll go ahead and do mine, uh, and mine I kind of rewrote more in this setting of what I'm going to get into with my baseless speculation, okay. uh, but we'll get there. Here we go. Now, said the badger, if only we could wake the spirits of these trees and this well, we should have done a good day's work. They came in a glade to an old hollow oak tree covered with moss, and Truffle Hunter tapped with his paw three times on the trunk and... There was no answer. The badger only grunted at this, and after that there was such a silence that Caspian had nearly dropped off to sleep when he thought he heard a faint musical sound from the depth of the woods at his back. He saw that Truffle Hunter was sitting up, staring into the wood. The hour has struck. Tree? (laughs) Yeah, and so I kind (laughs) of went with a more direction of like, you know, them actually trying to do this ritual to waken the trees back up. Yeah. And that kind of, yeah. You, you, and, you and the recurring theme of the trees in Narnia. It's a thing. I think Lewis was into it. Like, he brings the trees up a lot. Um, like, he was just really enamored by the ants and Lord of the Rings and this whole <laughs> idea. Um, anyway, so it's a, it's a recurring theme. Um, maybe because they were both, you know, the product of a time where, like, deforestation in England was a big thing, and, like, there weren't all these woods that there used to be. I don't know. <laughs> Is that a thing? Was that a was that a big deal? Well, I guess wartime, they would have had yeah. an, an increased demand yeah. on the production side of things, just like... Yeah. I don't know the time frame. I know that at, at one time, England was much, much more heavily forested than it currently is. Yeah. It has been. Uh, but anyway, so let's get into the last segment here. Uh, baseless speculation, where I, who have never read any of these books, except for Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but we're past that now. We're in new territory, and I go back through, and uh, I try to figure out what's going to happen based on, you know, what information I have available to me, and speculate baselessly, as the title may suggest. Ooh, boy, this one. All right, so, um, I got a lot to get into. We're going to briefly avoid the elephant in the room, which is the very ritualistic nature of this entire chapter. Oh, boy. Um, we're going to stop. You know, we're going to come back to that. That's going to be the meat of this. But we got a few other interesting things to talk about. So for one, we have um, several different groups of people that we meet in this chapter that all have like a number associated with them. So we have like the three bulgy bears and we have the seven... Uh, Sons of the Shuddering Wood, and we have the five black dwarfs, and we have, like, you know, Reba Cheap says there's 12 of us, and, like, there's all these numbers in the chapter, which I thought might be going somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not Pi, which would have been really cool if Lewis did that. <laughs> he doesn't list them in the order of, like, three, one, four, one, five, nine. It would have been really fun. Um, it's not. Well, how do you know? Because you did not count. <laughs> I did. So I have the three bulgy bears, then we have patter twig okay. one and then we have the seven and okay. then we have the five so it's a, it, you know the seven throws it off got it um anywho so if you take the total numbers uh of like named or mentioned creatures other than the dozens of fawns because that's not a specific number but if you take the specific numbers that are mentioned as well as every named character and add them all together you get the number 47 
Okay. Uh, which I looked in the number 47, and one of the original writers for Star Trek that influenced a lot of the... <laughs> oh, hang on. I told you. I told you to strap in. We're going for a ride. <laughs> um, one of the original writers from Star Trek uh, came from a small college in California where, don't want to get into the story of it, but there is a running, like, in-joke uh, in the college about the number 47. Uh, because one of the professors there, like, famously taught this uh, class on math where, you know, in a demonstrative thing about mathematical proofs, he would do this thing where he uh, tried to convince students that all numbers are equal to 47. Okay. Uh, and so it was like this running joke in the college that came up. And so one of the Star Trek writers brought this into the show, and 47 shows up all over the place in every single Star Trek series, if you look for it, apparently. It's like a lot of times where there's a number mentioned, 47 shows up, and it's like a running in joke of the show. I just thought that was fun. Not trying to connect that back to the chapter, except for the fact that my first idea of baseless speculation uh, came from this whole thing where Glenn Storm's talking about the stars and talking about these astronomical events. And maybe there was some significance to all these creatures that, like, reflected something going on in the heavens. And there was some significance here to what was going on in the heavens uh, that was supported by the seven red dwarfs okay. that we go and meet. And I was like, the dwarfs are actually like a constellation or, you know, whatever. Anyway, I couldn't go very far with that. Okay. So I abandoned that. Uh, also, 47, if you go look at historical dates... In 47 BC, there's a civil war that breaks out in Rome. Okay. Where Julius Caesar had to, you know, quash an uprising by a number of his generals that were trying to, you know. What, since when is baseless speculation just becoming you having conspiracy theories about the number 47? <laughs> no, sorry. Uh, I don't know. It's, you know, this is speculation about what Lewis was trying to do here. Okay, um, anyway. let's talk about what Lewis was trying to do here. Okay, anyway, that's that's all whatever. I just thought those were fun things. How much to... more research did you do? That was about it. Okay. Um, anyway, we're banning the 47 train because that's not what I was really going for. What I'm really going for is that this entire chapter is an elaborate ritual meant to prepare Caspian for the throne. Yes. Everything here. like there, He got sticky. There's so much of this. Like, there's... He didn't look where the nuts were. Yeah, so like there's there's so much of this where Truffle Hunter is like basically leading him through this ritual. Uh, so first we go to the bears, and like there's this very like he gets kissed by the bears. Yes, he gets kissed by the bears. Like he gets anointed by the bears with honey, and like eats the honey that the bears have. And so there's like an order to this that happens, um, where Truffle Hunter takes him to the bears first, and they feed him honey. Then we go meet Patter Twig, who like feeds him a nut. But there's a, something you know maybe weird going on with the nuts, where where they've like where they've come from like a holy place a secret place yes because he you know caspian is not allowed to look where patter twig is going they're like so what you're saying is like patter twig and the bulgy bears are priests yes who are anointing him as king and giving him his first communion yes the okay communion. so he's got like you know the honey which is the blood of the forest and then you know the you know the acorns which are the bread and like the body it, from the yeah. trees and that yeah. also you know kind of connects to like the spirits of the trees that they're trying to reawaken here okay and that's what the ritual is all about is they're trying to reawaken the trees so they're anointing him they're preparing for that they take him to the dwarves the dwarves get him his like 
holy outfit. Like he's got his mail, he's got a sword, his implements that he's supposed to have, you know, from the earth. Uh huh. And then we like go get the blessings of the black dwarves. Uh, we go, you know, get his followers and collect, you know, the, you know, reap a cheap. And he's like, there's 12 of us, 12 disciples, maybe like he's got his followers that he's gathering for this war. And then they have like the end of the chapter, which we didn't even really get into where like, you know, everybody's meeting on the dancing lawn. Like there's going to be a council. And then it turns into like this very ritualistic thing where the fawns come out and create like a, basically a summoning circle or like they do some sort of like <laughs> ritualistic dance that he gets involved in, and it's kind of like a dreamlike state. Maybe mm-hmm. he gets drugged at some point. Like he passes out. Maybe like the honey had like some kind of, you know, it's peyote, and he like had to have some kind of spiritual vision. Uh, but he gets taken into the fawn dancing circle. So all of it's very, very ritualistic. Yeah. And like it's there. Th- this is all about anointing and preparing him, and maybe summoning forth the spirits of the trees or something. But like. There's too much there for it to be coincidence. Okay. Yeah. No, I like, agree. <laughs> yeah. This it's very. So, what role is Caspian fi- filling in this? Uh, is this is this his baptism and yeah. his you know beginning of his ministry as a Jesus figure, or yeah. is this him being a king and a ruler in a story like, like king and ruler? Like this is. This is only, like, half serious. Like, this whole segment is also me, like, being silly. But at the same time, like, I feel like there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. And, like, were there some sort of, like, water scene or something that can be construed as baptism, I would be a 100- hundred... went underground. By a underground by, stream. By an underground stream. Okay. Under, through a hole that looked like no. a, a water storage device okay okay now i'm 100 percent convinced okay like yeah. <laughs> there's there's something there's something he had here. a baptism in earth yeah and he came up girt with a new sword and dressed in mail mm-hmm. and so, he put aside his childish sword of men and you know. took up his narnian sword mm-hmm. huh he died to his telmarine ways of being a child of the telmarines and rose forth from the earth as mm-hmm. this king of Narnia. Yeah. Okay, okay. So, I don't know, it's just... I, I want to say it's a real heavy Jesus metaphor or something like that. However, like, we have Jesus in these books already. Yeah. Aslan, by the way, I don't yeah. know if you... Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but it is a savior metaphor. Like, yeah. he is coming to be the savior of the Narnians. Yeah. Yeah, I might have actually touched on something with my silly speculations. Yeah. Also the number 47. True. Though when when I was adding the numbers, like when I was gathering all the numbers from the chapter, I was convinced that it was going to add up to 40, but yeah. no dice. No. Sorry. Oh, I couldn't make that happen. <laughs> and the three badgers. Yeah, I included I included three, them. Three bears and three badgers. Mhm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, what about the oat cakes that were given to him by the centaurs? I don't know. Yeah, I forgot about that. Like, if there's there's this recurring motif of him getting fed things. Yeah. And, like... I like yeah. the honey and the note and the... And like, everything is from nature. He's uh-huh. not, like, being given meat or, you mm-hmm. know... Okay, all right, all right, mm-hmm. all right. He does get cheese from the centaurs, which, you know... Okay creates a really interesting question about whether or not this is from talking cows and like what kind of scenario that creates 
Um, <laughs> that's uh, well, we can get into that at a later time. Or or goats. <laughs> yep. And then and then do fawns produce? All right. Uh, anyway. <laughs> So I think I really have something there with my baseless speculation. Like that's, I feel like this is the first time I've actually gotten into like some deeper themes in the in the chapter with it. No, aside from my connection. Or to Star maybe Trek. the honey's just honey, since you're the one who likes to just say maybe the curtains, <laughs> curtains are, are just blue, blue. every yeah. time I try to talk about symbolism. <laughs> uh, maybe How's it, it is. feel, Chris? How's it feel? I know it could be wrong. Anyway, right. go ahead and take us out, Kristen. All right. Um, and then once again, the two stars that were interacting with each other were the Lord of Victory and the Lady of Peace. And that is an interesting um, planetary, it's not a collision. I couldn't come up with this word last time. Conjunction. Conjunction. That is an interesting <laughs> planetary conjunction mm-hmm. between Victory and Peace mm-hmm. to have be the starting of war. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. I think that it's it's weird. Yeah. Lewis got real good at symbolism in this book. Like, no, I, I don't feel like victory and peace meeting in the sky symbolizes the beginning of war well, though. Like, that's the part that I'm really annoyed with. Like, lots of good symbolism. Mm-hmm. Lots of really interesting things to dig into. Yeah. Why is it victory and peace that are meeting in the sky to start a war? Because Narnia is not at peace and, like... To achieve peace, they have to have this victory in battle. So victory is coming and saying, Lady Peace, I will bring I will bring about yeah. your return. Victory is the herald of peace. Okay. Okay. So, anyway. I mean, from the Telmarine's perspective, there's already <laughs> peace. Yeah, I guess. At least from Moraz's perspective, we don't yeah. really know that. From the, from the perspective <sighs> of the oppressor, there yeah, is peace. Isn't that always the case? Yes, it is. <laughs> Not talking about I'm not talking about anything in America right now. No. Um, <laughs> All right. Okay. Anyway, I want to go ahead and finish this up. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we have been discussing Chapter Six of Prince Caspian, and if you would like to join in the conversation, you can do so at Chronically Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and at Chronically Pod on Twitter. You could also email us your fan art of little cloven hoof marks in the grass at chronicallypodcast at gmail.com. I was going to say your fan art of a water butt. A water butt, yes. (laughs) Also, uh, if you are interested in contributing to this endeavor and want to support us financially, you can do so at patreon.com slash chronicallypodcast. And by the end of this book, you might actually get something in exchange for your support. Mm-hmm. But as of yet, you get nothing. But, you know, the Our knowledge and satisfaction of being a supporter mm-hmm. of the podcast and helping us pay our monthly hosting fee. <laughs> um, and next week, we will be discussing Chapter 7 of Prince Caspian, Old Narnia in Danger. And it'll be about halfway through the book. And we will be pretty far into this book yeah. and still not have had the Pevensies meet anybody. <laughs> this is still just the story of yep. that one red dwarf with no name. Yep. It's a really long story. I'm cool. just picturing them all sitting in this island for like eight hours straight listening to this dwarf <laughs> go on and on and on and on. <sighs> yep. This is the shortened version of the story. Remember that because uh-huh. Lewis took out all of their interruptions and questions. Guess just take days. 
All right. Uh, <laughs> um, so, as always, never mock a man, save when he is stronger than you. Then, as you please. Never use your sword to cut loose your dwarf. Thank you so much for joining us. Bye. See ya. And down onto that sunny southern slopes. The bears. The bulgy bears. The bulgy bears. They're very bulgy. They are very bulgy. (laughs) I mean... So, from... Are we recording? The tale of... Are we recording? Yeah. Um, it's not pie, which would have been really cool if Lewis (laughs) did that. Yeah, um, and he's, like... Why? Wednesday's a bad day to record. Let's not do Wednesday. Apparently this is when all the planes come into town. You're gonna have a time editing this one. <sighs>